Welcome to Doorways to Learning, where we open the doors to educators from all over the world who have gems to share with us on how to excite and engage our students. Today, we have a much, much needed expert, Ahmed Baba, who is a collaborator on the very celebrated New York Times, Washington Post, the BBC, Rolling Stones, BuzzFeed, the New York Post, the Huffington Post, Yahoo News, Blavity, and Rant which focuses on the fallacies propagated by the Trump campaigns and presidency, not because he's anti-Trump, but because he's anti-disinformation. What Ahmed most wants us to do is think about what we hear, what we say, and most importantly, what we believe. Ahmed is going to share what media literacy is and how we can be more responsible adults in reading any type of literature, both digital and printed, and how we can support our students in forming their own conclusions as to the veracity of what they ingest daily. Without further ado, Ahmed Baba. Welcome, Ahmed Baba, and so excited to have you here. You are a media literacy expert. I've read a lot about you, and what I really want to know is, what is a media literacy expert? Well, first off, thank you for having me. It's it's a pleasure to be here to talk about this. Um, you know, it's it's almost interesting hearing myself being called a media literacy expert because I've just been doing this work for so long and always in the weeds of it. And then it wasn't until a couple of years ago where I realized that, you know, I actually had a lot I could teach, you know, especially younger people. And I would say it's someone who is able to really discern uh, fact from fiction and be able to not only utilize the tools of, of literacy and thoughtfulness in their own life, but are able to then relay that to other people in an effective way. That's what I would maybe label what an ex- expert is. Okay, we're going to go deep into that because um, while that's nice and succinct, it might not be as filling as I need more information. And I'll tell you why. I'm going to be the the not so much devil's advocate here, but the person who really needs a little bit of clarity. I was a high school teacher. I was a primary teacher, a university teacher. And whenever someone talked about media literacy, I kind of blanked out, Ahmed, because to me, there's sort of a disconnect about saying you need to be aware of the sources that you're reading. How in the world are we going to be aware of it? And that's what I would love to know from you, because I know how important it is for our students, the younger generation especially, to be aware that what they're reading may or may not be fact and fiction. So can you go into that a little bit? Yeah. So, you know, I know media literacy gets thrown around broadly as, you know, different, whether it's specifically focused on news media literacy or digital literacy. But I really think at this point, it's just literacy generally. It's it's about how we're consuming content in our day-to-day lives, whether it's a text from a friend or it's a book we're reading or it's media on TV or, or news in general. And and I would say really what it comes down to is just, you know, not just going and checking the credibility of a source and those tactics. It's more about a way of thinking, you know, kind of a framework of thought and being able to move through the world more thoughtfully on the skill set front. And also I would go beyond just the skills too. And what I'd like to incorporate on my end is the context of, of like how we got to this moment. And I think for me, it's more of a relaying 
to students, not just here's how you tell a credible source from not a non-credible one, but also like, here's how we got to this wild media ecosystem, this disinformation industrial complex, like this is how all these pieces move together. Cause it's, it's only happened in the last few decades. It's really new. And it's, I, I think people don't recognize how our brains aren't evolved to take on this onslaught of information. So I think just taking a step back and giving everybody the context and then letting them know that it's about personal thoughtfulness as well as knowing history is, is where I would kind of frame it. All right, but let's go back a little bit further because I think that we could both agree that even though the onslaught of technical information has been recent, let's say the last 15, 20 years, but whenever we have a human being giving us information, it is filtered through that person's agenda, through that person's background, perspective of life. And that's been happening forever, ever since we could communicate. So where, I guess what I'd like to start is where do we find integrity? What would you consider an integritist journalist, um, newspaper reporter? What do you consider integrity and where is the line drawn? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm glad in the first part of your, your remarks about the history, we can talk about that in a little bit about like kind of how the tactics have been used for you know centuries and a lot of what we're seeing today is echoing the 20th century. But yeah, when it comes to a journalist or a media person with integrity, I would say it's someone who's who's not only honest about what information they're they're giving, but also honest about where they stand. Like I think if you're a purely objective journalist, that's that's great. But also I think the the line of objectivity has been moved to the point where we saw a really big shift this week in like how Trump has been covered, especially in the last few weeks. Whereas some people who pretend as if, you know, there are always, you know, two sides to every single remark, or if one side's lying and one side's telling the truth, you just relay both and say, well, one side says this and one side says that. I'd say someone with integrity and information arbiter that's being honest is someone who isn't afraid to tell an audience in some extreme, in some cases when it's necessary, that this is actually not true. And here is also the tactics being used to perpetuate this untruth. So do you see that happening? I'm starting to see it happening a lot more. Um, really? Can I think you give us some specific examples? So in the end of 2020, we saw a lot of this, I think, where we saw uh, people calling out what Donald was doing in real time. It was just unmistakable. And everyone recognized there was this threat. And then it kind of went away once Biden took office. And I would say I was ringing this bell way well before this happened. But luckily, mainstream orgs are finally like the Atlantic just did a huge uh, their entire issue, January, February issue is dedicated to all of the threats of a potential Trump second term where they go through every single whether it's immigration, uh, authoritarianism, all of his plans, and they lay it out for their reader in, in, in and they actually cover the stakes, not the horse race. Like uh, NYU professor Jay Rosen always says, and I think um, that has been wonderful to see. Just that they're not afraid to tell the truth because they fear backlash. Okay. However, you say readers now aren't the readers who want that information, who already believe that information, the ones who are going to read that in the newspaper. When you say the Atlantic, it's the Atlantic Magazine. Okay, so. Yeah. 
are are they are they writing for their audience or are nonpartisan people or bipartisan people reading those that information those articles? Well, with the Atlantic, a lot of time they have their own subscribers, right? But there's also the New York Times, which has been mm-hmm. doing a lot of their own series of the stakes. And I think sometimes it could be preaching to a choir. Sometimes it might not be convincing. But when you have, have what I've been calling for is a lot of different news orgs saying the truth at once. And that's what we're kind of seeing pile up. If you were to just Google, and I know how everyone, you know, depending, regardless of your political leanings, you know, I'm not, I, I don't lean either way. I, I'm pro-democracy. And if you see someone who's openly saying they're going to unleash the Insurrection Act on Americans and, and put the military towards their own people, that's anti-democracy, right? So I think ca- calling these things out in the way that a lot of these news orgs do, they affect the broader narrative. And I think that has a cascading effect, just like how everyone who was fear-mongering about a recession had an effect about how the vibes of the economy was off, even though all the data said it wasn't off. There's a there's if every, if every news org is telling the truth, it shifts the vibes. And I know that's an unscientific way of putting it, but I really do feel that it has an impact on on polling and on voter sentiment if people are at least told the truth enough, as repeated as often as lies are repeated. Okay, so that's the key there because. I, I told you that in, in high school, I taught in the George Orwell's 1984 for four years. And I was about to go crazy because it's a very heavy novel. Yeah. But I wouldn't even say a novel. I would say that some politicians have, have read it as the Bible. But one of the big messages there is if you tell a truth, your truth, if you tell a lie, your lie, as many times as you want, it becomes what other people believe. And one exercise every four, every year, I would change the, the narratives to help my students understand this in reality. And the last year, what I did was something very simple. I took um, articles about famous people and I changed very t- a few sentences in each one. It was easy to do. It was simple to do. And I gave it to them and I talked to the first five minutes of every class. We talked about it and they were very polemic. They were very, there were, there were sentences which made you dislike this person. Whereas before you were, they were your heroes. It wasn't until there was one out of 60 students, Ahmed, out of 60 students, one of them figured out what I was doing. Only one. The rest of them believed every word in the articles that we talked about. And at the end, I did explain to them, I said, listen, you can trust me on every single thing that I say, except for this article. And you believed me. And I said, you need to take note that you believed everything in that article because I presented it to you. Now think about that and take that with you in the future. That's an incredible exercise because that's what you're talking about is so true. Um, There's this exploitation of trusted sources uh, that I write about and, and teach in some of these disinformation courses where they take a, tr- a source that is trusted by a specific target audience and they feed the disinformation through them. You know, in, in the case of the election lies, it was Fox News, who, of course, was sued afterwards and lost their lost that case um, in the Dominion lawsuit. But yes, they, they these were people, news anchors they trusted saying the election was stolen. And these are and you're going to believe that, you know, and in your case, you have these students Obviously, a lot more innocent than, you know, democracy eroding lies. You change some words in an article and they trust it because they trust you. A lot of times the messenger is more important 
than anything. Right. And then that repetition you're referring to in, in the Orwell book, like that's I literally just wrote an article. There's Aurelian is in the title that I wrote yesterday about Trump's re most recent speech. But you know that book is it highlights all of these these tactics that repetition over and over again, taking advantage of the illusory truth effect. Like once you believe it, once you've been hit with that information so often. And then if it's by, from a trusted source that only compounds it, and then you did something as minor as slipping that through, but that was such a brilliant exercise for them because it shows you have to be thoughtful and discerning from all sources of information, even questioning your teachers, question everything. And question that doesn't mean don't, that doesn't mean distrust everything. It means, you know, let people earn your trust and maintain the trust, you know? I think it's really important. I said to them in the end, you believe, you choose what you're going to believe. You choose it, no matter what who it is. If you're to your parents, you choose. If it's a newspaper, you choose what you're going to believe. So don't pretend that it's not your choice. And I, that was really the lesson I wanted them to learn. Let's get into a couple of specifics. Um, because really, I, for me as a high school teacher, I still would not know how to approach present what media literacy is. So let's just take the Delaware media literacy bill. Yeah. I'm not going to be the expert here. I'd love you to explain to me what it is and if you think that it's simply a Band-Aid or if it's something that might be viable in the future to help with all of this. So we're seeing a flurry of these bills. The Delaware bill is most similar to the New Jersey bill where it's about changing the standards, whereas the California is more like changing the frameworks. But essentially it mandates um, learning about media literacy and information literacy from K through 12. And it's so essentially all the kids will learn. Uh, they will learn how to do this. And I think implementation is going to be key. You know, when it's written in law is one thing, but how they approach it in practice will be a whole nother thing. And I think you're right. This is going to be a challenge because I think the teachers are going to obviously need to be trained on it. And, and the way to present it in different grade levels, you know, I think when they're younger, um, there's this book uh, from Erin Rogo, I think her name is, um, I have to double check, but she writes okay. about how to teach media literacy to children. Um, I think I took it in a note. I just want to pull it up so that you can, so that they can, the listeners can hear. Sure. But um, yeah, no, yeah, Faith Rogo, um, Media Literacy for Children. And she basically does this and teaches how to, at each grade level, and I was listening to a podcast and she was covering a lot about how you can do it in, in ways where you have, first, you don't have to even change the curriculum for some of these, these, these younger kids. You can just get them to start to question and think through different passages and stories. You know, like, what is this, what is this passage about? How did you come to that conclusion? What is your evidence to back up that conclusion? And then, so teachers across the country could do that. Uh, they don't even need a piece of legislation. And then that builds the skills that are necessary for media literacy, where if they form that habit before, without even the robust law that we saw in Delaware, they can start to just think through what they're consuming. And that's just the biggest key. It's just that way of thinking that isn't taught at the younger age. Okay. And can you explain what the, the Delaware bill was about? And does it, yeah. does it, flow over to the fairness doctrine or is that a separate issue? Yes, yeah, so the fairness doctrine is is, is, is different, but um, the Delaware bill specifically, yeah, it just mandates the, I, I don't know, I only br briefly touched on that, but then I just extrapolated, yeah. but yeah. Uh, it, it touches on mandating media literacy courses in K through 12. So essentially all of these kids will be able to 
not only learn how, apparently they want to also go through the systems, the technologies, let the kids be aware of how to tell non-credible sources from credible sources, how content is produced. I know in New Jersey too, that there's a big deal about that as well, where they want to have the children learn how content comes down the information pipeline, like where how it's constructed, how it's spread through social media. And I think that's going to give them the digital literacy along with that media literacy that the kids will need. So that's where I think the focus is. And again, I, I want to see, wait to see how it's implemented because this is all so new, but exciting because yeah. it's finally happening. But I don't think it's a Band-Aid. I think this is actually the way to do it. I think this is the most effective way to long-term solve our disinformation problems because it's a it's an education problem, I believe. There are always going to be people who spread disinformation and use technology. There have been, you know, that back when radio was the big thing, you know, fascists were using radio to spread their messages. It's about us and how we equip ourselves. Okay, so I'm going to ask you something because media literacy could also be about images, could it not? And I'm going to give you an example. So if you tell me it is, and I'm going to give you an example, and you tell me if this is something that is yeah. is viable in this whole conversation. There was something very simple on my webpage. I found one day this little icon that the um, the gay and lesbian community in Spain, I live in Spain, and they had created this, this rainbow icon, and it was being promoting their right to say and live the way they wanted to. And I thought, oh my goodness, I can be behind that. So I took the icon, it was really pretty, and I put it on my webpage. Well, a, a publisher called me a few days later and said, we'd like you to do some work for us. Can we, you give us your webpage link and we'd like to just look at it. They looked at it and their, their one comment was, this icon actually has come from the Vox party. And the Vox party is the most extreme and most conservative party in Spain now. And they actually are building, they are getting a lot of control. I had no idea. They did a simple search and found out the origins of the simple icon. Now that's something I should have been aware of because I put it on my page. So what can you tell us about that? Yeah, no, that's that's really interesting. So, I mean, it's probably, you probably could have gotten a flag from anywhere, but this specific one, I think they went and image sourced, searched on the web, they they went and inspected the element and they could see where it was linked from. But yeah, I think we're seeing a lot of uh, of these, these images and these messages being appropriated by disinformation and extremist movements where, you know, especially if you're anti-LGBTQ, you'll, you'll take these flags and you'll either um, disfigure them or you'll modify them in different ways to make, create hate symbols. So sometimes they create, move the flag and twist them into Nazi symbols and yeah. it's just this it's really just not just using these appropriating the messages of their opposition against them is something it's a tactic that we just always seen like a, Trump this weekend for example saying he is actually the defender of democracy and Biden's the destroyer of it it's it's this projection and deflection of of you know appropriating symbols and I haven't seen the Vox use of that of that image yet. I'd have to go look at it to see exactly how they how they presented it. But it sounds to me like they could be trying to appropriate an image from the other side or just
is, is that what it was? Was it just it, was it just an innocent image with a different with a link to their site or something? Yeah, or? I don't even remember. I was just so horrified that I'd done it that I took it off immediately and didn't do any more research. But that's exactly the problem. I'm, I feel like I'm fairly yeah. educated and it's something that's so simple that I did that I really should have researched. So yeah. I think that what what I'd love to clarify a little more, media literacy is being more aware of what the images we're using, the words we're using, the sources we're using. I mean, it really comes from the sources. But it comes to, for instance, in history, for instance, these are these are wonderful exercises of looking at historic events and finding the same historic events in different cultures, because obviously it's going to be presented differently. But it's a fantastic way of understanding that these are all words filtered through the culture and the, the people involved. Can you tell us a couple of ways that students can do this specifically? How can they find these sources? Yeah, so when it comes to a message that they're seeing online that they might be that might be appropriated or used historically in a different way, for example, I think a good one would be um, this "Save the Children" hashtag. Sounds pretty. It sounds like oh, saving the children is great. I would love to save the children. That was shared among QAnon groups and then taken over as this, you know, anti, you know, pedophile, satanic pedophile cabal that allegedly they believe exists and runs the world. Um, and then it could the way to do that would be click into a hashtag or click into a trend and look at where the trend started. Look at who else is posting about this. Do you want to be associated with this group of people? You know, that's something they could do um, easily on, on TikTok. You can go into a trend or go into uh, this would be really practical for them is clicking into a sound on TikTok. Uh, videos are tied to sounds. And right now, TikTok is the most used app by, by younger people. And if they click the sound, you can see what other videos are being used with that sound or trend. And you can find the source. And also, if they want to go further and do more research, they can Google a specific trend or, or saying to see where it resonates in history and see where it's been repeated and see what tactic is being used, which is what we see constantly now, 21st century is being echoed echoes of the 20th century and reusing the same messages, the same tactics over and over again. And if you, if our public was more informed about what had happened before, they wouldn't necessarily fall for the exact same autocratic tactics. And you were saying, we were talking about social media and it's not definitely your niche, but you know, you know a lot about it. And TikTok is one of the most um, used apps the use social media and i don't even know if it's social i don't even know it's media because it's pretty horrific a lot of it but it's what it's being ingested most by teenagers today and we could say young tw 20 year olds early 20 yeah. years yeah, yeah so yeah gen z and um just a quick stat on that so uh in 2020 i believe it was 22 percent of tiktok users said they got their news from it and now this year it is uh over 40 percent so it is, it's increasing. It is, it's just every social media platform. And actually I've worked in tech before journalism. So I have some level and we built a rant, we built a social platform. So I have some like knowledge of how, how they work and how algorithms work. And it's really, that's why it's so important to be on the thoughtful end of things and to manage your own consumption when you are at the whim of an algorithm like TikTok, where it just, if you if you dwell on one video a little bit too long, the algorithm says, oh, that you want more of this. And then it feeds you the next. And it's just it'll try to keep you on there 
And if you if you happen to engage with like there was, for example, I happened to watch one video from this misogynist, uh, Andrew Tate. I was hate watching it. And I was like, look at this guy. He's terrible. This is horrible. And then I scroll up and then all of a sudden the feed started feeding me more of this garbage. So one of the things I teach is telling kids like, make sure you are in control of your experience. Make sure that you know how these algorithms work. And then I talk about how they work and then tell them how they can train their own algorithm to feed them better content. Yeah, this leads in perfectly to what I also wanted to talk about. Um, I do phenomenon-based learning, which is project-based learning, and it's trying to give the students as much responsibility as possible in their own learning environment. I mean, if they're not engaged in the class and if they don't feel responsible, they're not going to feel engaged and responsible outside of class. That's my theory, and that's what I've seen. How does all this then play into promoting student agency and responsibility for your own learning and intake? Yeah, so uh, that's that's just the biggest key is making sure that you have autonomy over your own uh, experience. So that's where coming to explaining how the algorithms work can give them the ability to know what rules they're walking into. You have to you have you can't enter these spaces and not know the rules of how these things these work and how they impact you. And that's really one of the keys is understanding the, the rules, understanding thoughtful tactics yourself. I really just advise kids to take a step back, move slower. These algorithms and these social media platforms are meant to just drive your engagement. They want you to just retweet the next thing. They want you to just boost and 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 not sit and take the time to consume. So really what I like to teach is those kind of tactics to, to go and identify the source, slow your roll. Don't be afraid to, 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 to go Google or do more research on something before you share. And also do a lot of your own reading uh, outside of it and read on print because it does something better to your brain when you're reading books. It teaches you that critical thinking, thoughtfulness, um, you know, there's a study on deep reading where if you get into that zone, it builds the habits of you're not just passively consuming and scrolling. You're actually sitting with the content and thinking it through. So it's really all a lot. Most of it is about thoughtfulness and, and building those skills. I think it's fascinating. I didn't know the statistic about reading in books. I, I mean, I grew up reading physical book and I have a hard time reading it digitally. And part of it is when you're turning a page in a book, you turn very slowly and you're still reading as you turn. And you also, I mean, I turn back and go back and forth. I find it much more difficult in a digital book to find the place I wanted to go back to. And so I just keep going ahead. So I love the idea that in a physical book, it, it's better for the brain processing. I have a question for you, and hopefully this is not unfair because I didn't discuss this with you. You're giving workshops on media literacy. Can you tell us what the worst scenario is if if students are not schooled in media literacy and what the best scenario is, what you want them to take away from the workshop? Yeah, I think, you know, like worst cases and what would happen if the broader public of students aren't informed? Well, we would we would have... <laughs> <laughs> we'd have some more, a little bit more of what we've seen in the past. You know, we'd have more uh, grifters, more authoritarians being elected who are able to play to our baseline human instinctual needs and who are, you know, can play to, you know, like Trump, for example, where they play. And I know I talk about him a lot, but that's I've covered him for so long. I think we would have a lot. We'd have a lot less of a thoughtful society. We would continue to disagree more. We'd, we'd continue our polarization cycle. 
And I don't, I, I think we would continue to have these disinformation narratives permeate and this conspiracy theory culture that had re was really exacerbated by the pandemic. I think that's the worst case. It's, it just, it just continues to spiral and our democracies eroded. Okay. And before you go to the best case scenario, can you connect the dots? Because to me, I understand what you're saying. If we have people who don't, are not schooled in media literacy, we'll have more authoritarians, but I'd love you to explain how that gets from one to ex the other extreme. Yeah. So, so how it happens is when you have people who are falling, who are less informed and have less media literacy, when you don't understand the world well or how the world works, it's easy to see everything as some conspiracy. And that's what people, uh, conspiracy theorists, peddlers and disinformation peddlers, they do. They prey upon that ignorance and they prey upon the lack of media literacy and the more susceptibility to believe anything. So they'll create these vast conspiracies like, oh, the election was stolen, right? You can say that if people don't know how the election system works. You can say that if people don't know, um, if they don't recognize these tactics that are being used. If if you, you, if you have a, a base of people that doesn't understand how these basic, how, how to be thoughtful themselves and critically think through when someone is telling them not to believe their own eyes and ears, like, you know, 1984 uh, outlined, then you are led down a path where your voting behavior changes and you can then be more susceptible to demagoguery. And that's what we've seen throughout history. And most recently with this person that is running currently again, to try to come back. And um, unless you have this at the education level, when you're, when you're young, before you go out into the world, a lot of what I'm seeing when I'm talking to young people is they know a lot of this already. Luckily, I think we might need to do more of it for, for adults, to be honest, because a lot of these, yeah, there, there's some stuff they're falling for, but they at least know the baseline of their technological natives. So they know how algorithms work, whereas someone who might be following some of these autocrats don't. So broadly, I would say if you are less informed and you are you are less capable of being media literate, then you're more likely to fall for lies that demagogues tell you and then vote for the vote them into office, which then erodes democracy because they're ideology is not going to help anyone. <laughs> okay, so that would be the worst case scenario. What would be the best case scenario? You've pretty much inferred it, but let's go for it. Yeah, best best case scenario is we have a lot of young people who are growing up informed on this. They're more thoughtful. They're able to center themselves. They're able to separate themselves from their outrages sometimes and check their own confirmation bias. Uh, to make sure they're not, because a lot of these conspiracy theories and disinformation plays to confirmation bias, and they're able to move through the world more. Uh, you become a better person when you are more literate and you're able to be more thoughtful. You can have better conversations with people. And that's just the kind of the day-to-day -day stuff. And then broadly, your democracy is healthier. You're able to say, a lot of, most of us, if someone comes down a golden escalator and says Mexicans are rapists, you think, this person's trying to fear monger me uh, maybe I wouldn't believe the next thing he says. But if you have these preconceived biases, if you're, you know, if you, if you're not media literate, you will just fall for a lot of this because you're unable to separate yourself from maybe your own small town where you don't have any people of other backgrounds. And I think with a more media literate society, you're able to think beyond yourself. You're able, I think people who just read generally are able to be more thoughtful in, in this, in this way. And I think we would have a democracy that was more functioning. And that's why I think like the Delaware bill you mentioned is is not only not a band-aid, I think it's the way to fix this long term because it's 
It's about what we learn, the habits we learn as kids that will then safeguard our democracy long term. Okay. And if you if you wouldn't mind, I would love to address other ways that media literacy can really benefit our students. And I'm going to ask you two more questions. And the first is this. It doesn't necessarily have to apply to politics. It can really apply to anything in our lives. Um, I would say, especially medicine, we need to inform ourselves. We don't need to go in and be internet doctors, but we do need, we need to question our doctors and what the information they're giving us. I was just reading a story about a woman whose husband lost sight in his eye. And because they both believed the doctors, they did not read about a cure with steroids. It was simple steroids that could have cured his eyesight. And they found out about it three months too late. That's a very yeah. specific case. So can you tell yeah. us, you know, in science and sports and music, if we're more informed and don't believe what people are telling us, how we have broader knowledge base, yeah? Yeah, and in, 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 in science, sports, music, your own personal careers, if you take the time to be more thoughtful and not just take what these authority figures say to you, you shouldn't take everything at face value. You're able to move, to think for yourself throughout the world. You're able to make decisions for yourself, maybe research your own cure, right? just be thoughtful in regular conversation. It just makes you a better person. You're actually more interesting and interested in others. If you're more literate, um, reading more and just more thoughtful generally. And what you're talking about leads perfectly into the last question I want to ask. When I believe in questioning, I believe in questioning authority, I, but I, I, as a teacher, it's very important for me to say that it needs to be done respectfully. Yes, and of course. I think that's part of being mature is to question authority in a respectful way so that they they're not they don't feel threatened or if they do it's not your intention and that you can have a conversation because everything you're saying is what makes you a fuller person is the awareness that there might be a question that there might be a different truth there might be more information out there and also a person who is listening so that there is an exchange. So in your workshop, and this is the last part of it, what do you, what can you give us a couple of techniques that you use in your workshops that teachers listening might be able to simulate in their own classes? Yes, for sure. Also, uh, yeah, on the authority part, definitely I want them to contest authority respectfully. I want to make that clear. I don't want them people running around and just, you know, being being like that. I think it's more about just questioning the information and being thinking for yourself is more what I, what I want to champion. Some tactics I use for the kids to basically you're saying how to get them to to be more media literate generally. Yeah. So um, I go through exercises. So uh, sometimes I'll take them through where I show them some some fake content that has gone viral on social media before and ask them themselves if it's real or fake. And then it'll, sometimes it'll be funny content too. And you know, everyone kind of just, it, that's one of the people's favorite segments is walking through and, and I give them fake. One of the other thing I do is I give them a lot of quotes from, from politicians and uh, a lot of them are real. Some of them are fake, but I kind of expose like when you have real people saying truly ridiculous things, generally it's easier to believe if someone creates a fake quote. So uh, essentially, one of the things I do is have them go through exercises of fact-checking content themselves. Um, and another thing I do is I, I walk them through, there's this thing I have, this communication tree, where I talk them through how to communicate with people who believe different things in them. So like they start, I start by telling them, stay calm, you know, 
make sure you're just stay calm is just the best, the bottom line rule. That's the golden rule. Like try your best to just stay calm because a lot of times people will just want to rile you up. So, and then I, I help teach them how to, you know, decide whether this is, this is an opinion or if this is disinformation, if it's a difference in opinion, if it's disinformation, decide that. And then as you go up this communication tree, you then have an option of, do you want to engage or disengage with the conversation? Because it might not be worth the, it might not be worth the blood pressure spike to go down that conversation. And so a lot of it's one of the techniques to do is I kind of get them to walk through different scenarios and I separate them into groups and then have them have discussions of themselves. And really I take it more than just media consumption, but just how do you have discourse and extrapolate that out and, and into regular conversations you're having with your uncle at Thanksgiving, that's going to spew some nonsense to you. How do you handle that? And it's not always, it's, it's sometimes it's not, I had to learn this the hard way from my own experience because I used to get really riled up and have debates with everybody because, because I was doing journalism. Everyone wanted to debate me all the time. <laughs> and it was like, you have to try to move through the world differently and you have to put into practice the thoughtfulness and the stuff you're preaching. And so those are just a couple of the like specific exercises that I do. And I really like the fact that you were, that you're targeting emotions because the minute emotions get involved in a, an intellectual discussion, it becomes, it, it loses all authority. And I think that's really important for us to remember. And literally the biology in the brain will stop us from thinking really coherently. So that's a really important ex part of the exercise. So where can people find you? Because if I had you as a, a guest speaker in my school, I would have been mesmerized, mesmerized. I would have wanted oh. to learn anything you had to teach. Where oh. are you based? Where can you go? How can people reach you? Yeah, thank you. Well, I'm, I'm based in New York and um, you can follow me on social media. Ahmed Baba, if you search that on also on Google, you'd, you'd be able to find me there. Um, I write a newsletter just called Ahmed Baba's newsletter. I keep it simple so that, you know, you don't have to go and find all these different names. And so you can find, follow me on uh, social media. I'm on X Twitter still at the moment, um, but I'm on, but I'm, I'm transitioning off. I'm on threads. I am on Substack, And if you just Google me, you'll see all my stuff. Um, you can type in Ahmed Baba and then there's, you type, there's a, there's this Timbuktu scholar there. That's not me, but he's, he loves to have my, uh, my Google front page. He's like this legendary Timbuktu scholar. So I can't compete with him, but just click journalist after you type my name in Google and you'll see, all my stuff. I'm also on the independent as well, writing columns. So that is a long winded answer to your simple question. No, no, no. That's wonderful. I will put everything in the show notes, but I also want to make sure that people who are just listening understand that his name is A-H-M-E-D, Baba, B-A-B-A. And so please find him. And I will, again, put all of these links in. And so you can find Ahmed in and invited him invite him to your schools but just as importantly read his newsletters because you just have a plethora of information and people can use it in their classrooms and this is so needed so thank you so much for your time on that i really appreciate it i don't even think we got under the surface of how important media literacy is yeah. but it's a start it's definitely a start i could talk about this with you for another four hours so i uh, would love to continue the conversation in, in different formats but yeah. Um, and also, yeah, if you did want to, people do want to reach me to go to their school, you can also reach me at Ahmed at rant, R-A-N-T-T dot com. Perfect. Okay. I'm going to find out what listeners have been most interested in this talk, which is virtually everything. And then we'll do a second part in the future. All right. 
Thank you so much, Ahmed. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. So please send me the comments that most resonated with you from Ahmed's brilliant dissection of what media literacy is and how we can use it in our classes. What stands out the most for me is that he insists that media literacy is not just about checking sources. It is a way of thinking and moving through the world more thoughtfully. Ahmed will have to come back in the future to share more with us. And for the time being, please find him at the sites he mentioned. Ask him to come to your schools to educate your students. And join me next week to open more doors to important conversations like this one. In the meantime, have fun in your classes at home. Pay attention to where you're getting your information in both places and see you next week for more.